the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, brought to you from the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, held December 9-12, 2017 in Atlanta, Georgia, we sat down with Phil Rowlands, Vice President and Head Oncology Therapeutics Area Unit, as well as Drug Development Management and Portfolio Management at the Cade Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge, the United States. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Takeda is a global research and development-driven pharmaceutical company committed to bringing better health and a brighter future to patients by translating science into life-changing medicines. The company focuses its R&D efforts on oncology, gastroenterology, and central nervous system therapeutic areas, plus vaccines. Founded in the United States in 1998 as a wholly-owned subsidiary of Japanese Takeda Pharmaceuticals Company, Takeda Pharmaceuticals is among the top 15 pharmaceutical companies in the United States. In our interview with Phil Rollins, we talk about the history of Takeda, their focus on oncology and hematology, basic research, and the company's collaboration with industry partners. After the break, we're back with our interview with Phil Rollins. And welcome back. Let's listen to our interview with Phil Rollins, recorded during the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, held December 9th through 12th, 2017 in Atlanta, Georgia. Here at the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, we're meeting uh, Phil Rollins. He is the uh, Oncology Therapeutic Unit Head responsible for R&D at Takeda. And uh, he is also responsible for oversight and execution. Um, he's based in um, Cambridge. Tell us a little bit, uh, Phil, about Takeda, about your company. Um, what is your focus? What are some of the greatest challenges that you're dealing with um, as a company? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. Um, Takeda is a old company. It's uh, historically uh, has been in continuous existence for over 230 years. Um, Primarily, many people outside Japan were not familiar with Takeda, though. For a long, long time, it was a Japanese company. Um, In the recent eight to ten years, there's been a significant um, effort to drive globalization within Takeda. And today, Takeda looks very, very different as a company. We have a global footprint. We have a global pipeline. We have a global presence. Um, as part of that globalization, a, a few years ago, we took the decision to focus our efforts in key therapeutic areas, one of which is oncology. T- today, Takeda has three primary therapeutic areas, gastrointestinal disease, uh, neuroscience, and oncology. And of those three, oncology is the largest of the therapeutic areas. Uh, we also have a global vaccines unit as well. But, um, so as, as a global company today, we have a presence around the globe. Um, our primary R&D uh, activities are actually the center of activity for oncology research, development, and commercial is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So when you're, as a company, when you look at what you're doing, um, you, you focus on, on those three areas. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, you see challenges in, in, in what you do in, uh, in the development of, of new therapeutic drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see challenges in, in the way um, drugs may be distributed in the United States or abroad. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so oncology is a hugely competitive area for a start. So competition is probably one of our 
key cha- first key challenges um, to 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 find our space in this our space to succeed is is challenging. It's I see the challenges as opportunities as well. Uh, I think it, all of your listeners will will hopefully know um, it's it's a f- fantastic time to be in oncology. It's uh, you know the pace of scientific breakthroughs, the pace of technological advances, and the culture that we exist in. In including the increased collaboration between academia, industry, venture capital, etc., has been evolving at a, at a hugely rapid pace. It's hard to stay ahead of that curve, but it's also a great opportunity, right. and that that's what affects us mostly on a week to week basis. Right. So now. Shifting gears a little bit, mm-hmm. I mean, when you talk about cancer, when you talk about hematological diseases, when you talk about a lot of those um, areas that you're involved with, um, often heard are catchphrases, I would almost say, personalized medicine, targeted therapies, precision medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know that you're not a clinician, so you may have a different perspective on, on, on those kind of buzzwords almost. But from your perspective, what are some of the issues in, involved in that? What are some of the unique perspectives in, in this case? Yeah, so we have a whole spectrum now. Uh, those, those used to be catchwords, but they have actually become real words today, yes, in, in oncology, because we have all of those exemplified in, in new drugs available to patients today. You know, the, the furthest extreme on, on uh, personalized medicine are the breakthroughs in, in CAR-T and, and, and cell-based therapy in general and, ne- and the next wave in gene therapy, um, where, where you're actually now manufacturing individualized treatments uh, and you're, you're no longer really in the paradigm of drug development anymore. You're actually in the paradigm of patient management Right, um, f- using their own cells as their own therapy. Um, that's the most extreme. Uh, and Takeda today has our foot in, in our first foot in that door in, in, in partnerships that we've signed with, with Gamma Delta and with Noel Immune in the last 12 months to enter the field of cell-based therapy. Um, pr- precision medicine for me is more... Um, I link that to um, specific targeted therapies that engage a portion of the population by identification of a, char- a patient characteristic. Um, you know, the, the first of them probably has set in mm-hmm. um, many years ago now. Um, but increasingly, both large molecules, small molecule, different biologic constructs um, are targeting specific molecular characteristics of a patient. And, and with that in drug development, and we have a number that I can talk to in the Takeda pipeline, um, there was great opportunity to pick the right patients, to enrich from phase one onwards with the patients you are intending to, to, uh, to treat. And, and we see this, and I know that a particular focus area for you has been antibody drug conjugates. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a, a couple in the pipeline at Takeda. Uh, where from the first patient in the first trial, you're identifying those patients based on on the target. Um, so it's a great opportunity, but it's also um, a little bit of a challenge, particularly if it's a brand new target um, in the development of a test. So, so you can't just develop the drug. You have to have a right. diagnostic test. Yeah, that is actually one of the questions yeah. that I have in terms of um, you, you see a lot of pharmaceutical companies right now um, working together with the developments of diagnostic companies. Um, in, in, in how important is that? Because obviously um, in the past stories went, well, we, we, we prescribed the drugs to a patient yes. that may be a blockbuster drug or something else. And 
we don't even know it works, mm-hmm. but I mean, now with the development of new diagnostic tests, we probably be able to know before a drug is given to a patient whether it works. So how important is the development of that relationship? Uh, very important, yes. So you, so you want that test, at least in its... Um first version of the test, maybe not a fully validated test at that time, but at least available from your first trial onwards. So we are entering into discussions before we've even, uh, in some cases, before we've even identified the candidate drug in the discovery funnel. But when we're interested in a given target, um, we have one um, just entering the clinic now in Takeda uh, targeting uh, GCC, a a target that's... um, expressed on uh, gastrointestinal tumors and um, we're bringing an ADC into the clinic and um, we need a test for GCC. Luckily there is one already available and we need to develop that uh, as a, ultimately as a companion diagnostic. We had the same with Etcetris um, a, a number of years ago to make sure in that case the platform technology was already there to to um, to monitor different types of hematologic malignancy, so it wasn't quite as steep a curve, a learning curve, um, in that case. When you one step further, I mean, when we start looking at the diagnostic tests and we start looking at the development of new drugs, you 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 start very early. Mm-hmm. Um, how important is that for uh, regulatory authorities, the FDA, the EMEA, the European Medical Evaluation Authority? Um, how important is that for them to 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 look at your drug, um, at the development of new treatment options, um, and knowing that you are working with partners? Mm-hmm. Uh, Essentially, um, in the development of diagnostic drugs, yeah, I, I, or I think, the diagnostic part of it. Absolutely. So I, I think um, FDA, uh, EMA, other health authorities around the world have shown a keen interest in ensuring that diagnostics are made available, diagnostics are validated in an appropriate way. They've issued guidelines along those uh, along those lines. Um, the regulatory trend is beginning to change a little bit today and you may have seen from recent um, communications from the FDA for instance uh, a move to generalize the diagnostic um, that's available um, because that's I think uh, certainly from my side of the equation in the interests of patients um, to to not actually link um, the drug to a specified named manufactured test but instead to a, a broader range actually opens up around the globe uh, easier access to the diagnostic test and and I think you'll see that trend continue Okay. After the break we'll be back with Phil Rollins Here at the 59th ASH the American Society of Hematology we're talking to Phil Rollins He's the head of Oncology Therapeutics Unit at Takeda and responsible for R&D, strategy in oncology and hematology, plus oversight and execution. And he is based in Cambridge. Um, Before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, the kind of areas in which uh, Takeda is functioning, um, the kind of therapeutic areas. Um, Now, one of, actually during the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the um, reasons why you as a Takeda may decide to work in a specific therapeutic area or maybe in a very specific indication. Um, obviously, with the benefit of patients um, and, of course, what the company is able to do. 
Um, tell us a little bit about that decision process, the strategy behind that. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, as I mentioned, we chose to focus in three therapeutic areas, one of which was oncology. That That's um, essentially a recognition of um, productivity challenges in the industry. You've, you see that trend across many companies that uh, by diluting yourself across too many areas, you're not able to be as effective, uh, both in research and in development. So um, that was part of the reason for therapeutic area focus. Within oncology, we have a defined strategy that specifies areas of focus for us um, within that um, commitment to oncology. The first one is, is um, a commitment to curative intent in, in treating hematologic malignancies, which is particularly relevant to this right. conference, of course. Um, that's for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it's where our history as a company has been with the okay. Velcade and with Ninlaro, with AdCetris. Um, so obviously we've built up some experience, key relationships, key partnerships um, for us to be able to be successful in bringing new therapies to patients. Um, probably first and foremost, when we choose indications, we look at the patient first mm. and look at the level of unmet need. And today, despite some of the um, amazing advances over the last decade in heme malignancies, unfortunately, if you look at the blunt instrument of five-year survival rates across many of the sub-indications, there was still huge unmet need. And I think everybody recognizes that and, and room for better treatments across the board. Um, so that's the second piece. And, and probably the third piece we'll look at is um, our presence. So... Certainly, we have a strong presence in myeloma off the backbone mm -hmm. of Nenlaro and Velcade. So that's a key area for us to continue to want to advance and want to advance new standards of care and, and improved standards of care. Um, but today, we're lucky enough um, with some of the recent changes at Takeda, like the acquisition of Ariad, for instance, at the beginning of this calendar year, um, to have a presence with a what I, what we call a flagship product in each of the core areas. So so in addition to Nenlaro in myeloma, we have Adcetris, of course, in lymphoma. Right. And we have now Eclusig in uh, adult leukemias. Um, we have products late-stage pipeline to replenish and bring new therapies forward, um, like Pevanedistat in AML, um, which we can talk about in more detail if you're interested. But... Um, And in, in um, uh, lymphomas, with uh, a little bit further back in the pipeline with TAC659, which was also fe fe featured here at, uh, at ASH. So we have a sustainable pipeline, and that's probably the third area that right. guides us as to what we have available to us. So when you look at that, because what I hear is that obviously, as a company, you have your own unique research and development mm -hmm. Uh, obviously, um, with the history of the company, you um, have been able to buy out uh, other companies, uh, which requires a very different um, strategy. We were talking about Millennium, we were talking about Ariad, we're talking about those companies. Um, is that based on the therapeutic area you want to focus on? Is the, I mean, what's the process in that respect to grow the company in that way? Yeah. Well, I, th I think each acquisition, if you look across the industry, certainly for Takeda, is, is, has nuances around it. Um, certainly, if you compare and contrast, Millennium's acquisition was certainly a step for Takeda into oncology. There, mm -hmm. there was no presence there before that 
acquisition and you bought a ready-made R&D engine, if you like, for oncology. So that, that's, that's, that was fairly clear. For Ariad, it was slightly different in terms of um, Ariad gave us an, both an opportunity to expand our presence in hemalignancies, consistent with that first pillar of the strategy, but it also gave us uh, a near-approved product in solid tumors in, in a Lundberg. Mm-hmm. And that was a major step function change for Takeda. Um, we were known primarily for our presence in heme malignancies. Um, this was a change to the profile of the company to, and, and bought as a, 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 an exciting example of precision medicine uh, for right. ALK-positive lung cancer and opened the door with another pipeline asset further back in early, like TAC 788, um, to expand beyond that into precision medicine and lung cancer. So that becomes now the second layer of our R&D strategy. Um, the third layer that you wouldn't know to cater for today for our R&D strategy as yet, but hopefully you will do in the future, is, is harnessing the immune system. Of course, immuno-oncology has been the huge breakthrough over the last three, four years. Um, we weren't, weren't present in that first wave of PD-1, PD-L1s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we declared our intent two years ago to enter the field, but with a clear strategy which we believe is differentiated in, in saying we will not be a fast follower we will not go the same path. We're too far behind <laughs> for a start, and we wouldn't be competitive. Um, but instead, to invest in partnerships and to invest in next-generation technology um, to open the door to, um, hopefully, yet more effective treatments for patients. And uh, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, so, so when you look at IO, um, immuno-oncology, uh, often, especially within the combination of antibody drug on, you can see combination therapies coming around the corner. Yeah. Um, you see how, how um, in the clinical fields um, there are new trials being set up. Um, is that part of, of you, what you're looking up as a company to find out, well, what we have in the field of ADCs, yeah. how can we enhance uh, the, the potential for improve? The yes. treatment for patients. Yeah, so what, what, what we found with some of these partnerships that we've uh, signed with world-class um, early platform companies um, like Maverick, mm-hmm. like Crescendo, like Shattuck Labs, um, um, we signed 10, 10 deals in 20 months. It's an amazing pace of, of, of deal-making. Um, was our history in ADCs set us up well to be a partner of choice because essentially these were tweaks, if you like, on targeted delivery mechanisms, using mm-hmm. targeted delivery mechanisms, but instead of going straight to the tumor, targets within the immune system. And so, yes, and, and looking at combination strategies will be critical to success. Right. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, I mean, talking a little bit about um, the um, clinical trials um, and, and, and the experience that uh, people might have in the real world. Um, so the so-called real world versus clinical trial uh, experiences, specifically with multiple myeloma, for example. Um, tell us a little bit about that, what that means. Because obviously, um, I can only imagine that if you are looking at clinical trials, a relatively small number of patients, when you look at real-world experience, you may have a larger number of patients. But how does that impact what you're doing, and how does that maybe change the way you look at some of the areas of, of expertise? Yeah, so, so in, in um, very competitive spaces, um, you're looking to um, position your program, your, your product, um, with its unique properties. And um, we do our best to design, carefully design clinical trials to, to do that Mm -hmm. but as you say there's a limited number of patients for a start and 
the way that those patients are treated in clinical trials is under very carefully controlled uh, criteria, starting with the inclusion-exclusion criteria to mm-hmm. define the patient population, but even in the defined protocol that investigators follow. And myeloma is a classic example of that, where most of those clinical trials you see in, in frontline or in relapsed refractory are maintaining those patients through induction, through consolidation, and all the way through to either a fixed duration, long fixed duration of treatment or to, through to progression of disease. Um, that's not what we see in real-world use. We've been aware of this, and many of people have been aware of this for a number of years. We, we obviously see it with our own drug in, in Velcade. Um, where in the community settings, patients often are treated to best response and then come off treatment uh, for various reasons. Um, could be cost, could be um, um, just the, the tolerability profile, um, could be the investigator feels that that's the best the patient can do and that, that it'd be better for them to have a holiday before the mm-hmm. disease progresses and then they have to go through intense therapy again. Um, but we know from the science that, in myeloma at least, that prolonged therapy, a prolonged combination therapy and maintenance seems to set the patient up for a longer remission and a better outcome. Um, so our interest for Nenlaro, for instance, and that was the data that was presented here at ASH, was to start tracking this real-world data to see if the unique properties of Nenlaro, the oral drug with this risk-benefit, unique risk-benefit profile, is actually translating to what we think it will, which is that patients stay on longer. And right. Investigators choose to keep their patients on longer, and therefore, will that translate to better benefit? And we can only get that through real-world data. And that's the information you saw presented that just the, the initial part we've also as a company committed to a uh, full-scale registry trial which is mm. open now and then and en- en- enrolling if you like collecting data um, from real world um, evidence for supporting what we think will be a key differentiator right so uh, the, the impacts in, in, in this respect, is, it goes way beyond the clinical trial. So when, when you look at a clinical trial, it can be very limited to some extent. Uh, any surprises in, in some of the results that you may have expected from the initial clinical trials? Uh, and now in the real world, you see, oh, that works, that may not work. I mean, any, any exp- surprises? I think it's too early for us to comment specifically on the Nilaro examples. Right. Um, so far, no, they haven't. Actually, I guess the surprise would be that the data in the real world is matching the clinical trial data, which it hasn't done for other agents. Um, so maybe that's a surprise, and but it's, what we, it's what we hoped to uh, to see. Um, but it, it is too early to conclude that. And um, But yeah, you get a, an opportunity to really see how the drugs are getting used in, in real life. And uh, it, it's, uh, I, I think, going to become an increasing source of valuable data for many, many constituents. Uh, as you say, it's much broader than simply um, translation of clinical trial data. Right. So when you um, the question that comes to mind, I mean, a clinical trial obviously is very what was it limited. I mean, it's very uh, precise in how you measure uh, the results of a clinical trial. Um, how do you go about that within um, in real world situation? Are there trial data that you can easily or information that you can easily access or um, what is the, the process in that respect? Um, so I think it, the clinical trials need to be carefully controlled. The, the whole right. point is, is to, to try and minimize the number of variables and therefore to test your primary hypothesis. Um, so I don't expect that to change. 
I think you do see changes in trial design, particularly on secondary endpoints, to collect more valuable data, if you like, um, on outcomes beyond what we classically measure, such as progression, free survival, or, or even overall survival. Um, we have an example with a phase three trial with Pevanetistat that's just started, just opened now for screening of patients um, in uh, high-risk uh, MDS and, and uh, low-blast AML. Um, for those conditions, um, patient, the, the, long t- the poor prognosis for those patients is driven by the secondary consequences of the disease. You drive down um, their functional bone marrow and their functional blood um, cells, they get infections, they get anemia, they, uh, they're hospitalized, they have a number of second, uh, sequelae mm-hmm. that ultimately can cause death, but can also cause them huge impact, negative impact on quality of life. And so we've built in very robust secondary measures to measure both the quality of life of the patients and the downstream economic consequences right. of those secondary sequelae. So looking at, I mean, some of the aspects, when you look at quality of life, you look at, at, at the cost associated with drugs, um, and I can only kind of note that that is definitely a very hot-button issue right now, in, in, in not only here in the U.S., but also around the world. Yeah. Um, how does that impact some of the, the stuff that you do? I mean, in terms of, of looking at, at and, and, and some of the things that you can do to help patients. So I, the changes I see within the clinical trial design process and within R&D in general um, to, to react to this evolving world is, is that the focus is no longer on um, health authority approval. Right. If, if I looked a decade ago, the R&D program and the, and the study design were, were almost exclusively focused on showing an improvement that would meet a regulatory endpoint and get a drug approved. That was the hurdle. That was the, the, that that was the, the hurdle, it, yes. the primary aim. Um, today, when we start looking at the concept for a study before we even develop a synopsis for a study, the focus is through multiple lenses. It, it's still, obviously, you, you want to seek a successful registration, but increasingly it's through the lens of the patient mm-hmm. and providing something of value to the patient. It's for the pres- prescriber, for the physician, and what information are they going to need to choose that particular treatment cause. Is that is that baked in from the beginning? Yes, absolutely. From the very beginning, before, from the concept stage of a okay, we've, we're bringing this novel mechanism forward for this indication. You start looking at through that through that lens, uh, patient, physician, and and also payer, mm-hmm. and the, the people taking the decisions on what will be reimbursed and what won't be reimbursed, and what value proposition do they need to see, and and building in the endpoints that help to help to. Um, build that case and that's that's from the very beginning of development so a much more complex world in that respect absolutely yes okay yeah but but probably a much better one for patients in terms of the the appropriate hurdle for something that is intended to transform their lives in a positive way right because one of the things obviously um cost is an issue uh, but uh, when you look at, at benefits to a patient, I mean, novel drugs with new mechanisms of action or proposed mechanism of action um, may have certain benefits that other drugs may not have. Other, on the other hand, 
there may be still classical drugs that may have benefits over some of the novel yeah. drugs that come out. Yeah. Uh, how does that work in some of the things that you do? I think I touched upon some of it in terms mm-hmm. of the, the outcome of looking through those lenses, particularly the lens of a payer or the lens of a, of a, of a physician making a treatment choice is, is what is the full value impact of what you're trying to show. It's not just simply that, that I um, can prolong a patient's life or prolong a, a, a remission period for, for a given patient. It's, it's can I, in the example of Pevinetis that I gave you, can I, by doing that and by driving earlier, deeper responses, can I keep that patient from a hospitalization right. that impacts their life? Can I um, prevent um, a, a, a serious secondary infection and the treatment that goes with the secondary infection um, and also the lost uh, impact, the negative impact on quality of life? All of that has to, we have to collect hard data that it, it, it can be intuitive. Mm-hmm. Of course, and we've argued that many times as an industry that the value chain for a pharmaceutical, for a novel new drug is is broader than simply a five-month difference in right. primary endpoint. But it's um, to put the actual hard data against it is now critical. That's what people are looking for to actually choose these drugs and set the bar appropriately. Right. Now, of course, I mean, uh, today is a special day for, for, for Takeda in the sense that um, some exciting news came out in in one particular trial, yes, uh, the trial with uh, with focusing on the frontline advances in in uh, uh, Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about the drugs. We're talking about fedotin is the drugs that uh, we, yes. we're dealing with, etc. Yes, etc. Is the name of the brand name, and um, yeah, etc. Is now um, been been approved in Hodgkin's lymphoma for for um, what said five six years. Sorry, six mm-hmm. years. I had to count back. Um, and uh, we're very, very proud of this drug um, and, and, the, and, the, and the transformation it's made for uh, the lives of, of patients with Hodgkin's dis- disease. But this was a pivotal trial for us and for our partner, Seattle Genetics. Uh, Seattle have the rights to this drug in U.S. and Canada, and, and Takeda has co-developed the drug and, and has the rights in, in the rest of the world. Um, we... By doing the Echelon 1 trial, we were testing the effectiveness of of um brentuximab or etc included in the standard frontline regimen abvd uh adriamycin bleomycin mm-hmm. uh, vimblastine and, and um decarpazine but um the, the the difference here is and if you're familiar with the normal paradigm as we advance into earlier line settings um the industry and treating physicians become more and more reluctant to um, remove any element of standard of care. And particularly in this case, you have a very, very effective chemotherapy, yeah, multi-chemotherapy background. And it, it's hard to withhold something like that. So what we tend to do with the brand new drug is add-on. And so you move from triplets to quadruplets to quintuplet therapy in mm-hmm. some cases now, um, which adds a burden to the therapy um, and and to the cost, etc. So we felt confident enough in Adcetris' profile and the effects we'd seen in relapsed refractory disease to actually take a different strategy, which isn't often taken in mm-hmm. the industry. That's to substitute. Instead of adding on, we substitute. We, we with, withdrew pleomycin from the, the four, right. the four back, the chemo backbone, and we substituted in Adcetris. So we didn't just do that, though. We set up the trial to show superiority, which is an 
even extra hurdle because usually if you do the substitution, you would measure non-inferiority. Right. Um, we, we set the bar higher. So it, I feel it was a very brave decision on the part of the, the two companies and, and of the treating physicians and of the patients who, who enrolled. There were 1,334 patients in this trial. Uh, and today was a big day, as you say, because Dr. Connors got to present at the plenary session uh, the results of the trial, and, and it was a positive outcome, um, et cetera. It's added to AVD uh, was superior in, in the primary endpoint, which was two-year modified progression-free survival over the ABVD backbone. And, and given how effective that ABVD backbone is, this is significant. It's, it's a modest improvement. It's a mm-hmm. 5% overall improvement in MP. PFS, it's a 27% reduction in risk. Um, so it's not, um, you know, a, an enormous change. But I characterize it from what we hopefully have given treating physicians and patients as an alternative therapy here. That is the removal of bleomycin. Bleomycin is a very effective drug. We've known that for many, many years. It's also a toxic drug. Right. It, um, it uh, particularly has a unique um, pulmonary toxicity that, that is unpredictable. You don't know which patients, but about one in 50 patients uh, treated will um, suffer a fatal event. And um, these patients, if you, if you know Hodgkin's lymphoma, patients are relatively young. Um, so, so overcoming or removing that risk and removing the longer-term consequences for them through their life of, of pulmonary damage, I think is an enormous advance for patients. And, and I think the community will now look at which patients this might be the best choice for. I don't think it will be everybody. Right. But I, I do think it's a, a major step forward for Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. For Takeda, of course, it's, it's huge in terms of about four times as many patients are now eligible or will be, sorry, once we get approval. We, we've only just submitted to the health authorities. But hopefully once we get approval, four, four times as many patients would be eligible to receive, et cetera, so, as than before. So to conclude with um, something that has been um, mentioned as a concern um, for many years right now, um, it has to do with the treatment of cancers. Um, and lately it became again um, headline news. Will you talk about... Uh, racial disparities, uh, but also uh, the, the, the differences in treating underserved, underserved populations, uh, potentially poor patients. Um, how does that impact what, first of all, what, what you do as a company, but in more broader terms, um, what should we do as society to, to try to kind of maybe eliminate some of those very big issues in that respect? I think we take um, the, there are multiple different. I don't, I, I, first of all, let me acknowledge that I don't think we've solved this issue at all. Um, right. I think I think this is a, a real issue moving forward. Um, I think we we strive today for um, broad inclusion in mm-hmm. in clinical trials and um, making clinical trials accessible, not just at key opinion leader sites and key cancer centers, but in a broader setting particularly in the pivotal trials right um from an access perspective um Takeda is not unusual here many many companies um have specific access programs designed to try to um, support patients yeah. so when you talk yeah. about access and that yeah. basically i mean well people can get a drug 
may not necessarily be able to afford the drug. I mean, so what does that mean? What does access mean? So I, I think access for me as an R&D scientist is simply the maximum number of eligible patients that can access a new therapy. Um, access f- has a different connotation depending on which part of the industry right. you're talking to and which which part of the regulatory framework. Uh, I'm not an expert in that field, so I don't want to pretend to to, uh, to dig into detail on this one. But for me, it, it, it is. So we have um, expanded access programs mm-hmm. that broaden the access to the drug, particularly bridging the gaps between um, new data and uh, approval, which can be, as you know, around the globe, can be at different phases. We have um, specific... Um, registration-seeking approaches to go into countries that um, previously would not have been part of the map, etc. This is a great example of that. We recently uh, received approval in sub-Saharan Africa in, in Kenya, which we've never done before, as, uh, for, and, and for Ninlaro, sorry, for, um, and, and also an access program for etc. And um, individual access, as you talked about, which is um, specific programs once a drug is approved to mm-hmm. enable people to afford their therapies um, and those are diff- come in different flavors and different companies and I, again I don't want to go into detail because no. that's not my background um, so again in in, 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 uh, in conclusion I mean um, three different therapeutic areas uh, oncology being one of the most important things in terms of, of, of dealing with um, uh, what Takeda is doing um, when you look back at maybe the last five, ten years, uh, what ex- really excites you when you look at, at some of the developments that you've seen over this period of time? Personally, I've, I've been with Takeda for seven years, and um, I, I, this is a transformed company, mm-hmm. which is tremendously exciting for me. Our pipeline is... is um, it is rich in both late stage and early stage candidates that I think meet my personal definition of transformative uh, care in terms of the potential to transform patient lives. And um, across the industry, I think I talked before and I mentioned uh, it's a privilege to work in oncology today. Um, and I, I, it's just so exciting with the pace, the, the pace of change, the the, the, the science uh, not just around immuno-oncology, but around targeted therapies, around understanding the biology uh, of cancer, opening up new targets almost on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and you couple that with the advances in technology, and the CAR-T would be a good example of that, uh, enabling us to drug or target therapies in a completely different way today. And then this culture and this increased collaboration. Um, which, again, is a very different world than I, I lived in um, for even five years ago. Um, right. Can I highlight one of those collaborations, um, w- which was highlighted just before the ASH conference um, started uh, that impacts Takeda and other companies. And the, I was very pleased to see ASH as an organization had partnered with the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society here in the U.S. Uh, to highlight the BTML protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a... That's a new way of doing business for us is is, uh, to have a patient organization that is uh, striving to bring the right patients, uh, sorry, the right drugs to the right patients Mm -hmm. in a precision manner in AML, which is one of the most poorly served of the malignancies over the last few decades. 
and to reach out to industry and to say we would like to work with your drug or your drug because we think that's the best one we can offer to our patients and then we will bring you the network that gets you those rare patients to the trials in a totally different way and so so we had just announced the week before that, that Takeda had joined that BTML protocol with LLS for Pevinedistat and we're very excited um, and th- these are fundamentally different collaborative ways of doing drug development. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that brings to mind that you see today in many medical organizations, um, the, the, stri- the drive to actually work with patients, patient advocacy, um, and so that is really a real-life impact on what you do. It's not just an ivory tower where you actually try to develop something, but, I mean, it really works. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I think that's one of the most exciting transformations of, of the industry and of the community we work in. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded on December 10th, 2017, during the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, which took place December 9th through 12th, 2017, in Atlanta, Georgia. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange. And you can also download our program via iTunes. Later this month, UK Health Radio will also start broadcasting our program, and in March 2018, our program can be heard in Arizona on KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, Check our online journal, Oncazine, at Oncazine.com. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, Oncazine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonja Portillo, and this is the Oncazine Brief. The Oncozine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffman, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.